0: From the battlefield to the home front, our military is ripe with incredible stories and we want to tell them to you. Welcome to the Stand Guard Podcast, a show dedicated to uncovering the remarkable stories of our service members and our military history that often goes untold. I'm your host, Tim Coster, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Major Dave Pitlick. Let's see what we can dig up today. Welcome to this episode of the Stand Guard Podcast. Today, we're joined by Christine Pitsley, the Special Projects Director at the Museum of Connecticut History and Organizer of Digging into History, an award-winning experimental education program that brings Connecticut and French high school students together to learn about our shared past. Most recently, Christine traveled to France to help lead a battlefield tour, which gave participants the opportunity to visit the areas where soldiers from the 102nd Infantry Regiment fought in World War I. Thanks for joining us, Christine.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, so... For the people who haven't or aren't familiar with everything that's going on, could you tell us a little bit more about the history of the 102nd and their role in France during World War I? Wow,
1: that's a huge topic. Um, it's a topic that I love, though, so I will give it a try. The 102nd was part of the 26th Division, which was made up of National Guard troops from around New England. They were not well-liked by the regular army folks because, you know, they were citizen soldiers. And they were also not well-liked because General Edwards, who still statue is is right outside the capital, overlooking the armory, was the first to get an entire division on the ground in France, which was the twenty sixth. He kinda got in there before Pershing could get his guys on the ground. So the twenty sixth division was all on the ground in France by November of nineteen seventeen, which meant they were better trained than the rest of the troops that went over. And they were the first to go into battle. On April 20th of 1918, the 102nd was at Sechepre, France, a little tiny village in eastern France. And they were in the front line sacrifice trenches when they were overrun by 3,500 German soldiers. And that kind of cemented the role of the 102nd and the 26th division within World War I. The battle was seen to be a success by newspapers, 81 soldiers from Connecticut were killed, and they were mostly guys in Company C and D, which were New Haven, Middletown, Bristol. We had 400 wounded, 192 captured, but there were reports that more than 600 Germans were killed at that battle. So it became this rallying cry for the rest of the Army. One of the war artists, Harry Everett Townsend, talked about Seshprey and the guys of the 102nd throughout his diary talking about how You know, this battle had an impact on the rest of the army and the morale. The Germans had intended to show the green Americans, you know, teach them a lesson and ended up writing later about how well they fought. They, you know, the guys in the sacrifice trench were there to fight until death and that's exactly what they did. And they took down a ton of Germans in the process. And so... You know, they became battle-hardened. They, the 102nd took part in every major battle. Um, they were in a faint attack during Mise-Argonne. By that point, General Pershing had removed General Edwards as the commander of the 26th Division. You know, the, the 102nd came home heroes. When they came back to Connecticut, a parade was held and, and there were something like 30,000 people that came out to line the streets to welcome them home. And it also produced one of the most famous soldiers uh, known to man, or man's best friend, uh, Stubby, who was adopted by a New Britain soldier on the, the grounds of Camp Yale in New Haven, smuggled over to France, where he became a war hero, and is now... Taxidermied, sort of, and sitting in the Museum of American History down in the Smithsonian. And he is definitely our most famous 102nd uh, vet. But a lot of the guys that came home took that legacy of Seshbray. They took their membership in the 102nd really, really seriously. I mean, we've got the 102nd Association today, and when we did this tour, someone suggested the language that, you know, cultish following. and while I don't like the term of all of the military units I've ever interacted with, one a second I mean, it's it's fierce, fierce loyalty. And I think a lot of that was born out of what they did in world war one
0: yeah, I, I think the the history that goes on in World War one because we've been looking at that stuff, you know ever since we started our jobs and up here. Uh, it, it's really incredible because like you said there's Stubby, there's also uh, Major Rao who's pr- really uh impressive. His story is really impressive. I know you're a big fan of his. We're, we're working on trying to get another episode uh, about Corporal Ahern uh, and his his story. So there's a lot I think there's a lot of really cool interesting history, not just with the 102nd, but specifically the one oh second in World War one and in France and all the other areas where they were they were fighting. Yeah, so recently I know that we were in New Haven uh,
2: together, rededicating the World War One uh, monument and that beautiful flagpole they have there on the green. And I thought you told a really compelling story of your connection to the military, to the unit, to you know this time in history. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: So I do have a connection with World War One, um, with both the 102nd and uh, you know just the larger army. My grandfather, uh, James Harry Spiro. Was in the 39th Infantry, and he came back shell shocked. Um, I never knew him. My mom never actually knew him um, because, you know, he was so shell shocked from his experiences that he drank himself to death. And then I also had a great uncle who served in Company K of the 102nd. Again, I never knew him. He died before I was born, but the stories of him kind of persisted through my family. And then my my great uncle, who I do remember, was also – he was actually second company and served along the Mexican border with Company I in 1916. He had a disability. He somehow shot his – two of his fingers off. As um, one does. When when in Mexico. uh, So they wouldn't let him stay in and go to France. And I remember him. And so all of these stories persisted. And my family's military, you know, my dad, my uncle – Actually, two of my uncles, all of my male cousins, we've all served. I was in the Navy, and I'm the rare Navy girl who was actually inducted into an infantry association for my work with the 102nd. So even though I'm a Navy girl, I am so, so hardcore loyal to the 102nd.
0: Uh, As you said, it's a it's a cult following, and you're <laughs> a member of that cult. Yeah. <laughs> so th- th- this uh, th- this lineage of, of your family, is that what got you into military history, or how did that all begin? It,
1: I think it really began back in 2012 when the former state archivist brought this box of glass plate negatives into uh, the state librarian's office and said, these are all from World War I. They're all like home front pictures. We should do something with them. And I got involved in a digitization project to digitize all of those. And as I did that, I realized, you know, I bet there's lots of stuff in people's closets, um, you know, in their possessions that have to do with World War I. So we started this, this digitization program. And I collected something like 460 individual stories of men and women from around the world that served. And a ton of them were 102nd. And so I started looking more into them, and by 2016, I had fallen down the rabbit hole, and really started digging into the story of the 102nd, into you know individual soldiers and the battles that they were in, and you know it's it's kind of snowballed from there, and now it is my life's work, not just to tell the story of the regiment, but of the individuals like Timothy Ahern, like John Dillon, uh, like Arthur Paulson, the guys that fought there the ones that never came home you know because their stories are our stories they what they did impact us today
0: is there any story that you've read from these so far that has stood out
1: I think for me it's probably Arthur Paulson a lot of people that that you know do this kind of history and and go to France adopt a soldier Um, there's something about them I, I don't know how it is we choose them and that's the person we go and visit That's the person whose stories we just kind of carry with us. So in 2017, uh, this woman, Karen, emailed me to ask about her uncle. All she knew was that he had died in the war. His name was Arthur, and that was it. Um, He was the oldest of nine children. Her mother was one of the youngest, had very few memories, wanted to know more. So I looked him up in the the great three-volume set that the adjutant general did in 1941 about all of the Connecticut soldiers that fought. And there he was. He was uh, Company I, 102nd, from New Britain, and he was killed at Seshprey. So I was able to share all of this information with Karen. I was able to find a, a picture. And then I started coming across letters that he had written home that were published in the newspapers. And I don't know, something about Arthur... Just drew me, you know, and and so I every time I'm there, I go visit him. And this year, I had a really incredible experience because I got to bring Karen to his grave. Um, No other family member had ever been able to visit him, and so I got to be there as she became the first person to visit his grave, and it was one of the most. Moving things I've ever experienced in my life, and I'm going to cry if I talk to you more about it.
0: No, that that's an incredible story. I think because I, I imagine there's probably a lot of you know soldiers, not not just in the one o second, but who you know to, in general who fought in World War One or even World War Two, who you know are buried over in Europe somewhere, who haven't not been visited by family ever since. And I mean, I've never really thought about that, but that's that's kind of crazy to to think about yeah. that. So we'll we'll transition here a little bit and and talk about the tour itself. How did the idea of going over to France to do this battlefield tour come about? What, what was the origin story there?
1: So through all of those digitization days that we did and people that, you know, especially from the one a second that I met, tons of people asked, you know, are you ever going to do a tour? We would love to go and visit the battlefields, but we have no idea where to go. And so it had been percolating. Lots of people had asked over the years and last year we did a Sesh Prairie Day in Scotland, Connecticut and Randy Galk from um, Knee, Deep into, Knee Deep into History Battlefield Tours came up and and we started kind of batting the idea around and next thing I know here we are in France with uh, 12 participants touring the one a second battlefields. It was absolutely incredible. It was you know, I've become so familiar with these places, um, with Seshprey and with the, the different places along the Chemin de Dame and Chateau Thierry. And so to be able to share them with the descendants of the men who fought there, with members of Connecticut's militia, whose, you know, predecessors had been part of Machine Gun Battalion, part of the 26th Division, it was, it was, it was an honor
2: and how are you received there by the locals and the folks that still live there?
1: Oh, they, they love us. Most of the in, – in this very rural region, they don't get a lot of tourists. And when they do get tourists, they're World War I tourists. So we have a great relationship with, with the village of Seshprey. We've got a great relationship with some of the folks up on the Chimende Dam. That was an area that only the 26th Division was in. No other American division was ever up in that sector. Um, at least not in this part of the sector where where we were. So we've got great relationships up there. And so, yeah, I mean, they, they love having Americans. And Gilles, the gentleman who cares for a quarry that one of second soldiers lived in in February and March of 1918, really, really loves Americans. He loves bringing descendants and other Americans down into the quarries to see all of the carvings. Because while these guys lived down there, they... They carve their names into the walls. They use candles to, to sort of write their names with the carbon on the ceilings. So we've cataloged, I think it's about 260, 26 division soldiers. And I think something, about half of those are Connecticut guys. Some of them, you know, even leave their address for posterity. And, and for some of them, it's the last mark they made on the world because they were killed at subsequent battles.
0: That's one of the most interesting things I've always thought about you know these historical places you'd think like you know after the war is over they probably tore down a whole bunch of things and replaced it and the fact that some of the stuff still remains is is awesome because it's such like a living piece of history i I went to germany once and we visited the eagle's nest and um in there is a a stone fireplace that was i think mussolini gave it to him uh, as a gift or something birthday gift and in it are names carved from the 101st Airborne when they went and took it over and little pieces are chipped down. It's like, you know, Sergeant So-and-so from, you know, California was here. And it's just so interesting that, like, these things still exist. Like, they're still there. And that the fact that people are still working on preserving that is is incredible. So what would you say was... I think you kind of mentioned this before, but what was the best part of this tour? <laughs> if you could even, like, pick one.
1: Oh, that's really... So bringing Karen to her uncle's grave was up there. Um, She read a letter at his graveside that I had never heard. She had never shared this letter with me. It was written five days before he died. And he was writing to his mother. And he was basically saying goodbye. He knew that he was not going to come out of this battle alive. And there was not a dry eye in the cemetery. So that that was a, a very emotional moment. And that is on our Facebook page. We did post it because it was just such a, a unique moment. And then for me, being able to take part in the ceremonies in Seshprey, we, you know, this whole tour was sort of centered around the rededication of a fountain that was given by the people of Connecticut to the village in 1923. Some of the guys from the 102nd started a fund to help rebuild the water supply in the village, and they raised several thousand dollars. So they, they rebuilt the water supply and built a fountain with a plaque from the people of Connecticut talking about the bonds of friendship between Seshprey and Connecticut. And so we did a ceremony to remember the battle and to rededicate the fountain and then to rename uh, one of the roads into the village for the 26th Division. So I got to take part in that. I got to cut the rib- ribbon for the road. So that was that was really special to me because I got to share Seshprey. I got to share my friends in the village with people from Connecticut and it was great because the horse guard the the folks from second company governor's horse guard were there in uniform so they they stood watch for us and and represented all of the Connecticut soldiers that had been there Um, so that was that was really special for me and and going to the caves the quarries are one of my favorite places and and seeing Captain Paul Mazzara from the horse guard seeing his face when he came upon the wall that was just full of guys that had been Company D of the 102nd Machine Gun Battalion, which had originally been True Bay Cavalry, um, the, the predecessors for the Horse Guard. Seeing his face as he saw all of these names, that was priceless.
2: I'm so, sure. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot <coughs> bringing, you know, kind of both your worlds together in this one very specific spot. So you talked about Arthur Paulson and. You know, this premonition he had that he wasn't going to make it. That's why he wrote this letter home. And you also talked about sacrifice trenches. Can you tell us a little bit more about what a sacrifice trench was, how it was used, and, like, maybe what these guys had going through their heads when they found out that's where they were going?
1: So the sacrifice trench, and I've never found any other examples of it uh, outside of... National Guard troops being put in sacrifice trenches. So I think it was a a uniquely National Guard thing. These were the trenches out in the very front lines. And they were called sacrifice trenches because there were going to be no reinforcements sent. The line that the 102nd had to hold that morning was immense. And there were 350 men from two companies holding it. None of the companies were up to full strength, which should have been 250 men in a company. And there were, I mean, in these two companies, in Company C and D, there were 350 out of 500 men. And so they had to, I think the front line that they were holding was about a, a kilometer, two kilometers, which is a lot of space for that few few men. So, you know, these were also nasty trenches. Um, they were full of mud and water We've got accounts when they first came into this sector of the human waste and rotting duckboards and, you know, decaying bodies, you know, just the garbage in these trenches. So they had to spend some time cleaning them up. And so I would imagine that going into that frontline trench that morning, knowing that the Germans, there had been rumors that the Germans were planning something, had to be terrifying. You know, and Arthur Locke, Captain Arthur Locke, who was Company M decided to stay in the trench at midnight when he was relieved. Company L and M were in those sacrifice trenches at midnight. They were relieved by Company C and D. And three hours later, this battle began. So, you know, Arthur Locke stayed there and, you know, ended up giving his life in that trench. And so, yeah, I think it would have been terrifying... To know that, you know, the Germans were coming and you were, you were going to stay in that trench and die defending it because there was going to be nobody coming. And the Germans really made sure of that because so at 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, the artillery barrage began and it was a box barrage. So they cut off those frontline trenches from the rear. So back in headquarters, they had no idea what was going on because all of the communication lines were cut. Snipers were out, so runners were not making it. And by 5 o'clock in the morning, as the mist rolled in, the gas attack started. And, you know, and then you're overrun by 3,500 German troops, and something like 1,000 of them were German stormtroopers, which were the fiercest German troops that they had. They were kind of kept in reserve and treated like gold because they were so fierce, And, and they were meant to strike fear into the hearts of whoever they came across. And so that any men made it out of those trenches alive is a testament to the fierceness of the 102nd. Because, you know, there were, there were quite a few men that did come out alive. And Timothy Ahern was one of them. And, you know, he, he stayed in every single battle through the war. Um, John Dillon as well. It was a lot of those New Haven Irishmen, something about something about that Irish blood.
2: So, Christine, you talked a little bit about this, like, General Pershing versus Edwards dynamic. It seems like that there's a little bit more to that. Can you tell us about kind of that uh, rivalry? Oh,
1: yeah. I'm going to get in trouble from this for a lot of, like, the Pershing folks out there, but I don't care. No, it's completely (laughs) Um, worth it. So, yeah, Pershing did not like Edwards, and I think the feeling was mutual. I tend to think they were both at West Point at the same time. Edwards was an upperclassman when Pershing was an underclassman, and, you know... West Point was West Point back then. Uh, hazing was a way of life. By the time World War I began, I think there was probably already some dislike between the two of them. And I think that was furthered when Edwards managed to get the entire 26th Division over to France under Pershing's nose. Uh, you know, Pershing wanted his first division to be the first ones on the ground. And they were. They were there by July of 1917, but it was only part of the division. So Edwards managed to get the entire division over. And so I'm sure that didn't make Edwards any more likable in Pershing's eyes. And then, um, you know, and then came Seshprey, which the news reported on. Um, Every paper in America talked about Seshprey. And to Pershing, again, here's Edwards and his National Guard guys, uh, his citizen soldiers, getting credit for the first battle. And so if you if you look at most of the narratives, Sespre is just called a raid uh, because it was talked down by Pershing. Pershing thought it was a failure, so Pershing scholars and other World War I scholars who, you know, Pershing walks on water downplayed Sespre. And then there were a series of other Uh, Things that happened um, throughout the war that kind of put a black mark on Edwards as far as Pershing was concerned. He accused uh, soldiers in the 26th Division of fraternizing with the enemy, of, you know, not being strong enough of of all of these different little things. So that in the midst of the Meuse argonne offensive in October and November of 1918, he removed him. And that was a massive blow to the men of the 26th Division because they loved Edwards. They called him Daddy. You know, he he was at every parade in New England. He was revered. And Mike Shea has a great book, Revered Commander. It's it's a biography of General Edwards. And I, I have to say, with that publication and with all the work that we've done on Seshprey, there's been a reexamination of Seshprey. You know lots of Pershing people still think it's just a little skirmish, but we're getting there. We're getting the recognition for what the twenty sixth division accomplished and what pers or what uh, Edwards accomplished more recognized
2: right now, just to clarify, Edwards was a regular <laughs> army general that was put in charge of the yes. national Guard troops, right okay.
1: yes, I'm sorry about that
2: Oh no, completely fine and then uh, if I recall correctly, Pershing wasn't exactly much of a peach himself. I think he had a bit of a you know, call it a racist legacy and not wanting um, non-white troops to actually do the fighting. Is that correct? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, his, his nickname, Blackjack, came from some of that. Um, and yeah, he, uh, you know, he essentially segregated the troops. So most of the African-American troops, including the National Guard's second separate company, ended up being integrated with French troops and you know fought miraculously and just like really really fiercely. Um, We've got a a ton of questionnaires that were done after the war and it's really interesting to see a couple of them talk about serving under the French and how different they were treated than by the American army.
2: Yeah I've read Uh, quite a few accounts of the same and uh, basically the French love these guys and they didn't have any shortage of great things to say about their time with the French, and they loved it.
1: Yeah, they were they were fierce. And, you know, we've got a number of African-American soldiers from Connecticut who received Distinguished Service Crosses and Croix de Guerres, and, you know, they haven't had the recognition that they deserve because, really, they were an integral part of winning the war.
0: And I imagine just – because correct me if I'm wrong, the, the Battle of Seshprey was – they actually got pushed back at first, right? And then it was like three days later, they pushed back against the German troops and retook the town, which, I mean, you think about it, the war had been going on for a little bit at that point. It wasn't like we were, you know, first ones on the ground because they'd been battling in, in Europe there for a few years. And so, I mean, I think there was probably a benefit to us being like the fresh troops because we hadn't been fighting, but at the same time, we didn't have the experience. And so I think that's kind of a testament as well to to the, the troops of... Well, you know, all the troops—not just the, the one second—but the fact that they were able to go in and and take back against these seasoned German troops uh, an entire town. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and it was all within pretty much a day, mm. uh, which is why they call it a skirmish. But there were still significant losses on the German part. So,
0: yeah. a W is a W in my eyes. <laughs> Um, So I want to transition here a little bit. So you you did this battlefield tour, but you've also been involved in digging into history, which is your program, your educational program, where you bring, where you brought students from Connecticut over to France to do some educational uh, opportunities on the battlefield. And then you're also bringing the French students to Connecticut this year. Could you tell us a little bit more about that program?
1: So in 2019, uh, yeah, we brought 15 Connecticut high school students from all across the state to Seshprey to restore a section of those trenches that Connecticut guys had fought from uh, during the Battle of Seshprey. And we restored, I think it was about 160 feet of trench line. We cleared it out because the trenches are all still there. We were in what was called the Bois de Jury, Jury Woods. And there's just, you know, anywhere you go in these woods, you see the trench lines snaking through. So we chose a section that's kind of right up against the edge of the woods, overlooking the sacrifice trenches. And the kids cleared the trenches. They dug down a little bit because, you know, there's 100 years of debris. They also rebuilt some of the reinforcement walls, so they went out and cut tree, cut little saplings down, stripped them, wove them into walls, and then put them up. And they rebuilt one of the abris, one of the shelters. There had been a line of four of them. We have pictures of shelter number one in this line, and they rebuilt number two. Uh, the only thing they didn't do was use the chainsaw to cut down the trees, uh, but they moved the logs. They, they did everything. And prior to us going, each of them had to research a soldier from their hometown who had fought at Seshprey, so that when we were in the trenches, they, they understood. They knew you know, what it was like. Uh, one of the first things we did, we lined them up in the trench. The first morning we were there, we kept their backpacks on, and one of our chaperones took his trench whistle and said, I'm gonna blow this three times. When you hear it the third time, you go over the top of the trench and get out of the woods. And so he did that. They all kind of funneled out one little area, and we laughed because, you know, hey, you guys all just got mowed down by machine gun fire. And they knew there was nothing out there waiting for them, but their hearts were racing. They talked about it, about how, you know, they had a better understanding of what that had been like for their soldier. So that was just – it was an incredible experience to have those kids there. They all wrote their college essays on the experience, and I've got four of them coming back this summer. Uh, Four American students and five of the French students from the 2019 program will be taking part this year. So this year we're we're going back 250 years and kind of flipping the script. In 2019, we studied the Connecticut soldiers on the French battlefields. This time we're studying the French soldiers on the Connecticut battlefields. Well, not quite battlefields, but in Connecticut. We are doing an archaeological excavation of a French army camp from 1781 in Bolton, Connecticut. Uh, so this is where Rochambeau's armies, as they marched from Newport to Yorktown, would have stayed. We've got tons of really cool things planned for the kids, and you know, we're, we're really excited about it. We just released the press release yesterday of the students' names, and we've got kids again across from across the state. We have one soldier, or I'm sorry, one student who is actually part of the first company governor's foot guard. Uh, So we're really proud of that. You know, we we can't wait. We're going to be staying at CCSU and doing a, you know, tour of Hartford and some cultural things. Yeah, it's going to be exciting.
2: Now, was this the actual march as they came through Connecticut from, was it east to west? Yes. Interesting. So the house I grew up in actually had a <coughs> monument to that right in front of it in Southington.
1: Yep. So we are going to be spending a day in Southington. We'll be, um, we'll be going over to that monument and doing some other things in Southington as well. Small world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: How many people do you have involved in the program this year? And like, was there a wait list? Was there like how many people tried to get into it, and did you have to turn people away?
1: We did have to turn people away. We admitted we ended up admitting 12 students Um, we originally had set out for 10 but then the french numbers kept changing so we were able to admit 12 students we do have a wait list and you know like i said they're from all over the state they're really excited Uh, they had to go through it was a competitive application process so they had to do you know their their application a couple essays provide recommendations from teachers or other community leaders then they had to come through an interview process. Um, the students that made the top, I forget what percentage, um, had to go through an interview process. And, and then we had the really, really painstakingly difficult time of having to narrow down who the top 12 were. They're a great group of students. Um, we've got community partners all over the state that we'll be working with. And I know we've talked about working with doing something with the 102nd because you know the kids from France are all coming from that Sashepray region and one of the students is actually from Sashepray her uncle is the current mayor and her great grandfather was the mayor when the fountain was dedicated in 1923 and was a French soldier during the war
0: wow.
1: so you know a lot of history there you know one of the things the french students are trying to do we have the names of the french soldiers that marched through Connecticut that were with Rochambeau And we've identified, I think, about 12 from the area, some from, you know, the exact towns where these kids are coming from. So the French are trying to do some research on these soldiers so that they can come and tell us about the individual lives of some of these soldiers. Because we don't generally learn about the French involvement in the war. And when we do, we hear about Lafayette, not Rochambeau, not about the army. And we certainly don't know anything about the individual soldiers who fought, so you know it'll be it'll be interesting to see if they can find anything, because that paints a picture of you know the men and women because a lot of them brought their children and wives with them and they followed the camp. So yeah, excited to excited to see what we uncover this summer.
0: I couldn't imagine that happening in today's like oh, I'm just gonna bring my <laughs> wife and yeah just and casually take over them to the Middle East and yeah.
2: I think we're going to have to try and interview some of the French kids and uh, get their perspective and be a good story to tell.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So going back to 2019, I, you know, I remember you guys had an event here at the Armory uh, to do the awards and whatnot. And it seemed like they all had a fantastic time over there, Uh, not just, you know, from an educational standpoint, but from, you know, just a life standpoint. From your perspective or from what you've heard from the students, what was like the biggest thing they took away from the program?
1: On some part, it was an understanding of the relevance history has on their lives today. I had one student who really wasn't interested in history. She she was a French student. You know, she spoke French. She was one of the few kids on that trip that could speak French. And that's why she came on the trip, because she really wanted to practice French language. And... When she was researching her soldier, she was able to meet with some of his family members and read some of the letters he had written home. And that made an impact on her. And then being able to be in the trenches um, where he fought, she suddenly began to realize, you know, how his history impacts her life because she's driving around Simsbury and seeing things related to this guy and his family. And, you know, since then she's just become much more aware of the history around her. So that, you know, as a historian, for me, that's a big thing. But I think for the kids, it was a sense of, of family. You know, we had 31 kids, uh, 15 American and 16 French. Most of the French kids didn't speak English. Most of the English kids didn't speak, or American kids didn't speak French. But by the end, they were hugging and crying, and they were a family, And they're still in touch. The student I just mentioned actually was in France last summer visiting in Seshprey, some of the friends that she made. And they, on their own, took it upon themselves to grab some rakes and shovels and go clean out the trenches. And every one of the kids is still involved in some way. Um, Their parents are involved. Their communities are involved. You know, the impact was far greater than I ever could have imagined. And it's... You know, we hope to be able to continue this program. You know, when I was in France a couple of weeks ago, the mayor and I talked about it. And, you know, they have every intention of having us come back next year and then they come back the following year and and so on. Because there's, you know, there's miles and miles of trenches to be cleared.
2: You know, I was thinking (coughs) about what you were saying, driving around town and seeing things and not understanding what the historical connection was. I had never heard of Major Rao. Uh, prior to somebody from the American Legion calling me up and saying, hey, we have all the stuff that belonged to this major Rao guy. Uh, We're closing up shop. Do you want it? And I'm like, okay, yeah, like that sounds cool. And then I started looking into it, and I was very fascinated by the history. And I was driving down Main Street in Middletown one day, and I saw the sign, and it's dedicated after major Rao. And I was like, how many times have I driven past this and had no idea and understood the connection, you know, that my hometown has with a significant history. It's just I don't know. I feel like
0: uh, the more we can do for
2: education, the better it seems. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many good stories too. <clears throat> Excuse me, like we were talking about. And you know, and that's one of the things that we've always tried to do in our, you know, office here is just to try to tell stories of, you know, service members and, and everything. That's why we started this podcast because it's it's so interesting oh. how many good and just fascinating stories are out there that you just don't get told you know because you know if it's not like an important battle or you know a really significant general you you probably won't ever hear about you know the the corporal aherns or mm-hmm. or whomever so I, I think your program is an incredible opportunity for people to learn about that stuff as well and you kind of mentioned that you you ho- you're hoping that you're going to continue this Going in future years, where do you see the program going in the future?
1: We've talked about expanding the program. There are a couple other states in the past that have approached us about expanding. It's kind of hard to do because Seshpray is a really unique place, and you know, it was Connecticut guys, Um, so it's it's kind of hard to replicate. I would like to find a way to bring that experiential piece of the program to schools. I don't know how yet. I think, you know, I. We've, we've talked about doing some virtual reality-type programming because it was, it was the experience. And, and that's actually, I think, one of the things that the kids in 2019 and this year are most excited about, the idea that there are things you cannot learn from a classroom or from a book. And being in the trenches taught them more about World War I than any book they had read. And the kids this year are excited about, you know, again— being in a trench, a different kind of trench this time, but being in the trenches to learn about this particular period of history. So finding a way to bring that into schools, to students who don't have the opportunity to take part in this program, um, I think is, is really where I'd like to go with this. Yeah. Um, because it, it's had such an impact, experiential learning for a lot of kids, I think especially post-pandemic kids, is going to be important.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Because there, I think there really is something about, you know, getting your hands dirty in, you know, in the action or not in the action, but you know, in the area of where something happened. Because uh, reading a book is great, but you know, they're just words on a page. But the actual experience is, you know, so much more.
2: Yeah, it's not the same as walking the ground and you know retracing steps and seeing people's names actually etched onto you know, the stone, it's completely different, and it hits totally different. Now, for people that want to participate, is there a cost to the family? Or is this a grant? How does this work?
1: So there is a cost to the family. In 2019, the cost was significantly higher because we had to use a student travel company just for insurance purposes and, and travel purposes. This year, it's a much lower cost. It's $750. And that's really just to kind of help us offset the housing and food costs, because that those two things are not Covered by grants, we have received a number of uh, significant donations. National Park Service uh, is funding our transportation. That's a <laughs> big, huge piece. But we are doing fundraising to help cover the rest of the costs because, you know, we're a state agency, but we have no funding for this program. We're not, you know, we're not trying to make a profit off of it. We're just trying to offer these kids this experience. So we do have a $10,000 fundraising goal over the next month and a half, month and a half. Um, so, you know, we're, we're looking for sponsors. Uh, sponsorship gets you certain perks, um, T-shirts and behind-the-scenes tours of our museum, things like that. But we're also looking for small donors because, you know, we want people to support this. We came to the – we did the program here at the Armory and opened it to the public because so many people – Across Connecticut, after the 2019 program, wanted to hear from the kids. They were engaged through social media, through news organizations, with this program. So we want to do the same thing this time. We want to, especially since it's in our backyard, we're telling our history. Uh, you know, we want to we want to encourage people to get involved.
0: And and on that, where where can people go to learn more about the program and the fundraising efforts and whatnot?
1: We're on Facebook. Uh, most of of what we're doing is on the CT in world war number one uh, on Facebook. And we also have a, a website, CT number one.org. And you can find a link to digging into history there. So you can read about the 2019 program, read more about the, the current program. I am in the process of updating that webpage now to include all the new students' names and definitely, you know, keep an eye out on newspapers, social other social media channels, we're trying to get the word out there as much as possible because, you know, what these kids achieve, you know, just being able to get into the program and then what they're going to do in this program is worthy of, you know, worthy of news coverage. It's, you know, it's something they should be proud of and we should be proud of because, you know, not every student can do this, but this, this group of students are remarkable. So we're excited to see what they can do.
0: Is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up?
1: If you haven't seen Sergeant Stubby in American Hero, you should totally watch it. It's an animated film, but it is it's really good. And there may have been one or two generals at the premiere that, you know, had allergy eyes that night that watered a little bit. So we're proud of the movie because we were we were part of it and both the Connecticut National Guard and Connecticut State Library are in the credits uh, because of our work on that film. So Kudos to your colleague, Russell Bonacorso. Well,
2: yeah. Thank you so much for being here today, Christine. We greatly appreciate it. And uh, we'll
0: see you next time. Thank
1: mm-hmm. you so much for having me. And I can't wait to do this again and have some students around the table.
0: I like it. Thank you for listening to the Stand Guard podcast, a production of the Connecticut National Guard. Please make sure to like and follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts.